Mark 7 this morning. Please take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 7. We'll continue our exposition, our verse-by-verse exposition through the wonderful, precious gospel according to Mark. If you've been a part of our church for a while, faithfully, you've noticed that uh, I've been gone a lot recently. And it's not because I was sick or on vacation or doing something else. It was because I had mandatory military training to complete. This training was required of me to continue my 15-year-plus military career. So thank you for your support, your prayers. I was able to complete that training by God's grace. So I had planned on being back for a while. But last weekend, I got a call from my sister saying that my aunt had passed away. She had suffered for a while due to some debilitating disease. And though I wasn't really close to my, gra- my aunt, I was close to my Uncle Bob. My Uncle Bob was like a grandpa to me. And so I went there mainly to spend time with my dear old Uncle Bob. And I did. We sat for hours. And we had, adult, and we had several adult conversations. It was a precious time. Time I won't forget. But not only that, I had an opportunity to talk to my dad, who was an unbeliever. Just like you, you probably find it difficult to talk to your unbelieving relatives about Christ. It's no different for me. But after the funeral or memorial service, whatever they call, they had the ashes there. Her body wasn't there. We all went down to the restaurant, the only really the only restaurant in town, and uh, I had a chance to sit down with my dad and my grandpa. You know, we were we were catching up. I hadn't seen him in two years, and of course, inevitably, something about religion comes up because of my vocation. So in that sense, easier for me to talk about the gospel because people expect it from me. And, and usually my dad just gets very mad. He, he's a big 6'4", 350-pound man, and, and, and he gets scary. He's like the Incredible Hulk. He like starts throwing things and swearing at me. But this, was, this, this, this occasion was different. I think it's because the death of my aunt, his sister-in-law, create an opportunity to talk about things that really matter. And so I was there with my grandpa and my dad, and they were asking me questions about faith and the gospel and religion in general. And I was going pretty deep. And I was very encouraged because there was no anger being provoked from my dad and my grandpa. But there was a man sitting on the other side of me, who was eavesdropping, and he was listening, and his anger boiled over. This has never happened in my life. This old man 
rudely and bluntly interrupted this conversation I was having with my dad and my grandpa. You could not understand why I would sit there in front of my dear old grandpa and my dad and say, faith is the basis of our salvation. Faith in the finished work of Christ is the basis of our salvation, nothing else. And that's good news. Because there's no sacrament you have to perform. There's no charity you have to do. You can't trust in your own goodness to save you because you're not good. The Bible says in Romans 3, none are good. All have gone astray, right? You know it. And so that was enough for this man to finally say something like, what about John 6? Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have eternal life. How do you interpret that? Which, well, all you Protestants just interpret differently the way you want, don't you? And, and so that began a rather lengthy evangelistic and apologetic discussion between this old Roman Catholic stranger. You see, to him, the Roman Catholic interpretation of John 6.54 is the basis of his salvation. He believes that after you've been baptized, you go to a fancy building with an altar and a priest wrapped in uh, vestments and robes could feed him the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that was efficacious for his salvation. In other words, that served as a basis of his salvation. So, which is it? What did Jesus mean? Well, I'll pick up the story later in the message, but I'll just say right now that the interpretation that this man had was based on tradition, not exegesis. The view that Christ somehow mystically is brought down from heaven and infused into a wafer and a cup of wine is rooted in tradition. So in that conversation, I could have, I should have gone to Mark 7. I should have said, what you believe is based on tradition, not scripture. It's in this passage of scripture this morning that we're going to look at, Mark 7, 1 to 13, that we are informed of a doctrine that by far, contrary to some belief, precedes the church fathers, precedes Luther and the Reformation, and everyone in between. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our final authority, sole authority for faith and practice. Jesus himself affirmed this. Jesus, the one who is the God-man 
who dwelt among us. He boldly and authoritatively condemned the religious people for pushing aside and ignoring God's word in order to practice a man-made tradition. Let's read about this in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. This is the word of God. So when you hear this, when you heard this read, when you hear this read, it's God speaking to you. Mark 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of his father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corbin. That is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. You do many things such as that. Tradition versus truth. That's what the message is about. Now, I need to make one point of clarification before we progress. The issue here is not tradition in and of itself, per se. Tradition itself is not the problem. There are there are places in Scripture where we, we read that that. Tradition can be good. In Second uh, Thessalonians 2.15, for example, Paul wrote, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. So maybe some would read this on our surface and, and be like, are Paul and Jesus at odds here? Does that seem somewhat contradictory? Well, and any time we have to ask that question, brothers and sisters, the problem is with us. The problem is that we lack understanding and we lack knowledge. The scripture never contradicts itself. We believe in the perspicuity of scripture, 
perspicuity. That means that Scripture is clear enough for those who have God's Spirit to understand. So, of course, Paul does not disagree with Jesus. Paul here in this text is talking about the apostolic doctrine that did not contradict what was already revealed. So don't walk away from this message thinking Heitman's out to slaughter every tradition known to man. No. We mustn't throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. The dispute that Jesus had in Mark 7 with the Pharisees was this. Tradition becomes a problem and detrimental to your soul when man-made tradition usurps and supersedes what God has clearly revealed. That's when it becomes a problem. And that's when we need to address it. Straightforwardly. Tradition that usurps the word of God is wrong. It's sinful. And it puts out the light of the gospel. It hardens people. Hardens people. Because tradition is a religious lie. And a religious lie has so much power. The belief that scripture alone is the highest and supreme authority. And that's the basis of our faith, Scripture. Without Scripture, there's no truth. Without Scripture, we can know nothing. Without Scripture, men would have tainted the gospel a generation after Christ died. That hymn we just sung before I got up here, ancient words long preserved. Talking about the preservation of this book. And in this book contains the words of life, the lamp that lights the path to the Lord. Amen? So this is the issue that Jesus brings to the table in Matthew 7. Scripture alone is precisely what Jesus is addressing. This text is about truth versus tradition. It's about divine revelation versus human rules. It's about true religion versus false spirituality. As a side note, in this chapter, we see a different side of Jesus, don't we? In Mark 6, we saw a very compassionate Jesus. That splonkanon, right? That deep-seated, gut-level feeling he had for the starving people. And then we see uh, the next the next passage in Mark 6 that I preached, we saw the kindness of Jesus. He walked out in the water and he calmed and he and he comforted the disciples who were in the midst of a literal storm. Not a spiritual one. <laughs> but here there's no kind Jesus here. This is Jesus the warrior. This is Jesus the contender. This is Jesus the polemicist. And we must embrace this side of Jesus, can't we? He pulls no punches here. 
doesn't take a seminary degree to figure that out, does it? He does not gently or patiently dignify their arrogant, ridiculous question with an answer. He just attacks them, spiritually speaking. He goes on the offense, and he charges these Pharisees with three indictments, all having to do with denying the proper role that Scripture has over God's people. These indictments should stand as a judgment against all men in history, in the past, in the present, and in the future. They stand in judgment against all who would elevate man's rules above the word of God. To claim that something is as important or more important than the Bible is a travesty. And Jesus does not condone it. But secondly, here's what hits home for all of us here today. You and you and you and you and me. Allow these indictments to be a warning to you as well. Because I know all of you who are in this room, most of you. And we all have the tendency and the temptation to hold a little too tightly to our Baptistic traditions. Every one of you has a tradition that's not in the Bible that you love. And if you're not careful, you will elevate that tradition to a level that's dangerous. Scripture alone is our standard. Scripture alone, that is a standard by which we judge all truth and all practice. Everything else is secondary. So before we investigate these indictments, draw your, uh, your, your focus to the question which prompted them. In verse 5, notice that the Pharisees didn't come to Jesus, which they know him by now, right? They didn't come to him and ask, why are, you, why, are you, why are you breaking God's commandments? Why are you violating Leviticus 14.31 or whatever? No. They flat out ask with much tenacity, why do your disciples not walk according to what? The traditions of the elders. That would be like me going to you and saying, hey, why don't you conform to the tradition of me and Aaron? Most of you would be like, what are you talking about? You're nuts. And rightly so. I won't ever ask you that, by the way. So what, what are these traditions? What are the traditions of the elders? Well, they're simply the countless rules and endless regulations that were added to the Bible by the scribes. And they required average faithful Jews to observe these rules as a means of justification and sanctification, as a means of being saved and as a means of growing in their faith. These rules were called the tradition of the elders. They were elevated to a place of equality with Scripture 
and then eventually above Scripture. These were the words of the rabbis, which eventually smothered out the authority and primacy of the written word. So when Jesus came preaching and acting in a way that did not conform to the tradition of the elders, it created the perfect storm. The perfect storm for conflict. Now as I observe, and as you observe with me, as we walk through Mark, do you see a pattern here yet? Do you see how Jesus refuses to cater to the whims and legalistic rules of these Pharisees? You know, Jesus is often soft and gentle with with earnest people who are seeking him out. Isn't he? But to his followers, he can be pretty stern. to the religious leaders who preach falsehood and bind souls to their doctrines. Jesus does not tolerate it. Now, that has radically, even recently, in the past couple years, has, has changed how I live my Christian life. And it's changed how I conduct my ministry. We need to be patient with earnest-seeking sinners. I'm called to be patient with you. You're called to be patient with me. I'm called to forgive you. You're called to forgive me. I'm called to serve you. You're called to serve me. But religious men and women who preach false doctrine that bind their souls to Satan. We must follow the example of Jesus here. We must confront them and say, you have forsaken the word of God for your tradition. Not for the sake of fighting. It's for the sake that God might save their souls. So, let's look at these indictments. What did Jesus indict these Pharisees with for binding people to their tradition? Well, first of all, you'll see in verse 6 and 7 that Jesus indicts them with the sin of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Those who love tradition more than God's word are nothing but fakers. In verse 6, Jesus said, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. You see, you see that, that you? You know, true preaching, I've been taught, always gets to the you. You have to listen. You have to heed. You have to obey. You have to repent. Jesus does this here. You hypocrites. It's you. Not your friends. Not everyone else. Not your daddy, not your forefathers, you. Hypocrites. Some of you have probably heard that the 
the, the original word that's translated hypocrite literally means to impersonate someone. It was used to apply to an actor who would, who would put on a mask and a costume and pretend to be someone who's not. That's what hypocrite is. They, they, they wear a mask. They shield who they really are inside. And so by claiming that, that, that these Pharisees were servants of Yahweh, while at the same time binding people to their traditions, Jesus bluntly charges them with being pretenders, hypocrites. And then to expand on how they have proven this, Jesus appeals to what? The word of God. See, even Jesus uses the word of God in his encounters with sinners. So don't be afraid to do that too. Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, verse 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Wow. Think about that for a minute. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You know what Jesus is saying there? Why is he drawing this out from the Old Testament? Because he's indicting them of teaching man-made truths as God's doctrine. Scary business. So by doing this, Jesus points the Pharisees back to a time in Israel's history that predated the traditions of men. You see, long before, this is why we read the Old Testament in, in our worship services. So, so, you, so you can kind of get a little background, a little history of the New Testament. If you understand or have, have read the Old Testament in, in, in a while, you would know that, that, that first or B.C. Israel had already become apostate before the Pharisees. Right? They, they, they had become enslaved to external, mechanical, thoughtless, empty ritualism. That's why Isaiah wrote what he wrote. And by, by, by appealing to this verse in, in front of the Pharisees, Jesus was stoking the fire. He, he's touching a nerve. He does, he's not only say you're hypocrites, here's why. So not only was Jesus calling them fakers, you hypocrites, he was saying that your worship is false. It's unacceptable. And so brothers and sisters, this would be like Jesus walking into Vatican City. Marching up to the Pope and saying, you hypocrite. It would be like Jesus coming into a large, popular, watered-down, egotistical church and saying, you hypocrite. So the religious leaders of the day as we see here, they, they were legitimately charged with hypocrisy because they failed to hold Scripture in its rightful place. So the question for us today 
it should this not cause us to wonder what extra biblical tradition we value? What extra biblical tradition do you value? If you're drawing a blank, let me give a few. I'm not, this is totally general. Music. You get upset if the style of music that you prefer isn't played. Congratulations, there's your tradition. You hear it all the time. Style of music, it's not addressed in Scripture, but the content is worship the Father in spirit and truth. Play skillfully. Shout to the Lord. Glorify my name. That's it. How about dress? How about you get irked if somebody isn't dressing the way you think they should be dressed? And it gets you upset. How about the seat you're sitting in? Isn't it ridiculous that people get territorial about their seat in church? <laughs> that happens. So, so let me lovingly tell you, the seat you're sitting in isn't yours. <laughs> so if you come to church one day and something, someone's sitting in it, and say, instead of saying, get out of my chair, you know, uh, shake their hand and say, good morning. See, those are, tra- those are baptistic traditions that, that, that divide us. So, so don't, don't let those things divide us. The gospel divides. Nothing else should. So beware of hypocrisy. That's the first indictment that Jesus levels at the Pharisees who elevated the human tradition over God's word. The second is negligence. Negligence, verse 8. Those who love God, those who love tradition more than God's word Willfully ignore the truth. Willfully. Verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. That word neglect, it means to send away. Actively. I remember one day I was working in the garage with my stepdad. He was kind of a grease monkey guy. He worked at the Pontiac dealership or something like that. And, and one, one weekend, I was helping him change the oil or change a tire or something. I, remember, I don't remember what we were doing, but I remember what happened vividly. We were in the garage, and out of nowhere, this old, dirty dog, this mutt, this stray dog, came barreling inside the garage. And I guess my, my dad wasn't a dog person. And he, he, he got out from underneath his car, and he stood up, and he said, Get out of here! And at first, I wondered, why be so mean to the dog? Some of you are thinking that, right? If a, if, a, if a stray dog came to your garage, you'd probably get down and pet it and, you know, and call its owner. But I don't know. He didn't. But you know what? That dog, faster than he ran in, he ran out. He was gone. I didn't see him again. It was enough to frighten him because my stepdad willfully sent that mutt running. That's precisely what the Pharisees did with the word of God. 
sent it away actively. That's what the Jews did with the Old Testament. Why would God's own covenant people? We read about that this morning from Genesis 17. God's own covenant people. Why would they actively dismiss the word of God? Why? So they could follow their vain traditions. So make no mistake about it. Where there is competition with the word of God, you will find a slippery slope towards spiritual negligence. Let me remind you this morning that Scripture has no partner. The plain reading of Scripture has no partner. There's no other inspired text. There's no other inspired revelation. There's no authorized apocrypha, which is just a word that describes the extra books that the Catholics add to their Bible. Those were added in the 16th century, the Council of Trent, as a response to the Reformation. Side note. There is certainly no sacred tradition, which we'll get to later. There's no catechism. There's no confession. There's no creed. There's no doctrinal statement. That is on par or is elevated above the word of God. The 66 books of the Bible. Inform us of what we must believe. And what we must do. Everything must be evaluated in light of what the book says. Amen. So where the Bible is silent. Okay, this is where it gets harder for us Baptists to say amen to. (laughs) We can say all day long, sola scriptura and the book is the ultimate standard. But here's what that really means. When the Bible is silent, we must be flexible. We must practice deference. We must practice submission. We must be willing to let go of our traditions. Another example is old glory right there. American flag. Do you know, Christians love to fight about that. Do you know that? Did anybody not know that Christians love to fight about the American flag in the worship service? They do. They think it's possibly a symbol of idolatry that conservative Republican Christians worship America. Maybe in some churches, that's true. But you know what? If all of you got together and said, hey, Heitman, I'd really appreciate it. It would really, would really cause less of a distraction for us if we could just not have it. They're like, well, whatever. It's a tradition. It's just a tradition to have an American flag in the church service or the sanctuary. So that, that's an example of where the Bible is silent. You must use wisdom, caution, patience, deference. Apply what Paul says to the Philippians and said, count the other as more important than yourself. 
It's always awkward for me to say this, but the Bible is clear, so I have to say it. Being willing to forego your traditions also means following leadership, followership. It's important. If we don't practice followership and we don't practice submission toward one another, willing to let go of our traditions for the sake of unity and fellowship and the Great Commission, then we are on the road to negligence, as the Pharisees were. The third indictment against those who elevate God's word over, excuse me, third indictment against those who elevate human tradition over God's word is arrogance. Hypocrisy, negligence, and arrogance. Here's why loving human tradition is so arrogant. Because if you elevate human tradition above God's word, what you're saying to God and to us is that you know better. Men know better. That's arrogance. Isn't that, not the, isn't that the, the epitome of arrogance? To say that you know better than God? So in verse 9, he says, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Setting aside, it's to displace, to abrogate, to get rid of, to nullify. He says that you're experts at that. You're experts. You're very skilled. You're very good at nullifying the law. They've become so advanced in the tradition of elders that they were so concerned about non prescriptive tradition more than the clear commands from Yahweh. And we get an example of this from Jesus himself. Look what he says next. He gives, he gives a specific example in verses 10 to 12. He says, For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of his father or mother, it is, he is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever Whatever I have that would help you is Corbin, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. So here Jesus, he's, he's, he's appealing to Scripture again, and he's revealing one effect, cold effect, a sad effect, a superficial tradition that allowed men to practice their selfishness. So the background here is that the Pharisees taught, the elders, scribes taught that a child could refuse financial help to his sick and dying parents on the grounds that everything the child had was allocated to God. Corbin, the word for devoted to God. It referred to money and materials that have been pledged to God. And so you see how this tradition provided a loophole for selfish, uncompassionate people 
who would keep their money for themselves, all while appearing to be on the outside, super spiritual. This, in turn, would give sons an excuse not to help their parents in need. How wicked. Can't imagine that. Using God as an excuse to let my parents lay in a bed and die. Shocking, isn't it? But this is what religious tradition does. It blinds people. So this tradition that Jesus is talking about here, it obviously completely undermined the plain reading of the Torah. Honor your father and mother. And by doing this, Jesus says, verse 13, you invalidate the word of God. Interestingly, this word invalidate, it's derived from kurios, which is translated to Lord. Lord. Lord is applied to Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the title of deity when referred to him. Because the only one who's truly the Lord overall is God, right? So Jesus was telling them that they attributed God's word with no value. They, they viewed God's word as having no lordship over them. They annulled the centrality of scripture. in exchange for some self-righteous system that led them to condemnation. You see what this is serious stuff here? You see why it's so serious? You see why I have a passion to help you, educate you, equip you about what so many false religions teach and believe. If you don't know, if you don't know what the Roman Catholic puts his hope in, how are you going to deal with that? You need to know so you can be used to deliver the good news to them. So, the problem here that Jesus addressed was that human tradition must not, cannot, will not hold greater authority than Scripture. It breeds hypocrisy, negligence, and arrogance. And when we replace the clear meaning of Scripture with human tradition, what does it lead to? It leads to apostasy. That's exactly what happened in church history, and it still happens today. Countless poor lost souls are blindly following the tradition of men. The man I encountered last week was one of those men. He could not get over the fact that the Eucharist, the that the communion table, the sacrament of transubstantiation, he can accept, not want to even listen to reason 
You want to know why? You want to know why our Roman Catholic friends are so loyal to that sacrament? Do you want to know why? I'm going to tell you anyways. And you know, I'm the messenger. You report. I report. You decide. In an attempt to prove to me that Rome has the corner on the truth and Rome's interpretation of John 6.54 is right. The tradition that undergirds that conviction is found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is the, the Rome's, uh, Roman Catholic Church's official teaching. So if you're going to judge, as a side note, if you're going to judge Catholicism or any other religion, for that matter, go to the source. Don't, don't, don't judge Catholicism based on what your neighbor says. Judge it by the source. I hope you don't judge what I believe based on what someone else says. Based on what my standard is. So paragraph 1406 directly quotes John 6.54. Directly quotes it. And then in the paragraphs underneath that, it lists several paragraphs which explain what they think it means. Okay? So paragraph 1407 says this. The Eucharist, quote, is the heart and summit of the church's life. The heart and the summit of the church's life. In other words, everything rests on that. So then it goes on to say, for in it, Christ associates to his church and all her members with his sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving offered once for all on the cross to his father. There's more I could quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. But time does not permit. That's a different class. Stay tuned for the conference we're having later in September. But this is why that man that I met last week after my aunt's funeral was so dogmatically convinced that Jesus meant you had to literally eat his body and drink his blood to have eternal life. He believes that because Rome says the Eucharist is the heart and summit of the church's life. And if you have any discernment at all, there should be loud sirens going off in your mind. What is truly the heart and summit of the church's life? The man, Christ Jesus. Not some wafer that is mystically transformed. But this sounds like a lot like Mark 7, doesn't it? To forsake the word of God for tradition. By doing that, we become hypocrites. We become negligent. 
we become arrogant, and we have more in common with the Pharisees than we do with Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, open our eyes to any traditions that we may be fiercely loyal to, traditions that would allow us to disobey you and sin, traditions that would keep us from serving the church, evil traditions that would keep us from edifying our brothers and sisters in the local church, traditions that would cause us to judge one another harshly, traditions that would cause us to undermine your lordship. Oh, Father, please forgive us. Please forgive us for loving our traditions so much. Give us a willing spirit. Give us the ability to place traditions in their proper role and that would be underneath the word of God. May we all be knit together, centered centered on your word, which points us to the cross of Christ. The cross where all sinners could come to you by faith, not by sacrament, and be given perfect righteousness so we can stand before you blameless. We love you, Lord.